Good morning. John 17. We have been looking at the priestly prayer, the farewell prayer of Jesus prior to his arrest in Gethsemane. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and last week, this is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament, and last week we took a look at the first few verses, Jesus prays for himself, and then verses 6 through 19 we also took a look at, that's where Jesus prays for his disciples, and now today we look at the last part of the prayer, and we start in verse 20, where Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known you that sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. We are ready to receive your word today. We have enjoyed singing to you. And as we have, our hearts have been prepared for what we are about to receive. We thank you. Make it clear. Make it compelling. Make it challenging. Life-changing. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off today by bringing up Bill and Matthias just for a second. <laughs> I want to bring these guys up for a second. Now, Bill went to get some water in the Bay Area. That's <laughs> right here. He just had to do a full sprint from the back. All right, I want to bring up these guys for a moment, not for the reason that you think. I want to bring them up because um, outside of here, outside of leading worship, they are embarked on a work that is very important to me. They work over at the Palm Beach School for Autism. And when I drop my daughter off over at the Palm Beach School for Autism, it's a little bit different than dropping my son off at the elementary school. At the Palm Beach School for Autism, a lot of the kids, well, they won't make it from the car into the school unless somebody is there to guide them unless somebody is there on their behalf. And that's what they do. This is part of their responsibility. That's not all of their responsibility, but it's part of their responsibility. And as a dad, what it means to me, knowing these two young men, watching these men grow up, well, this is important because here they are, and they are advocates for these children, and they're men of God, and they're right there, strategically placed. And as a dad, because they're there on behalf of these kids, that's huge to me. 
Thank you, guys. All right. What does that have to do with what we're talking about today? I think it has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. As we take a look at this last part of the prayer, uh, we're taking a look at who Jesus is praying for, what he's praying for them. And as I look at this, I think of those moments as we're talking about the subject of prayer where we realize that Jesus came on our behalf to bridge the gap between heaven and earth because there's one God and one mediator between God and men, right? And so we know Jesus is there on our behalf, kind of like when we got to the school this morning. We got to the school this morning, and it was about 84 degrees in here, 85 degrees in here. It was pretty warm in here uh, in Florida standards. It was warm. Um, so we got here, and Cecil says, well, Pastor John, he goes, I've got a call placed to the school district, and somebody is going to come out, and they're going to reset the chiller. They're going to get us reconnected. And so... We're sweating blood as we're rehearsing, as we're setting up today, and we're saying, okay, no matter what happens today, we're going to worship God no matter what. Well, then we see the truck come in, and we know that that truck is there on our behalf. That truck is there on our behalf, and he's going to fix it, and he's going to make it cool in here, and he's going to make it so we can breathe in here. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have had the wind knocked out of you lately where it felt like you had something in your life happen and you couldn't breathe? All right, And it's at that moment that doesn't it help when somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, looks like you're struggling. I want to pray for you. And at that moment, to know that somebody, somebody is willing to step between heaven and earth and connect us, reconnect us with something that we have not lost connection with, but perhaps we forgot. Because it's easy during situations to forget our connection, Right? And so it's awesome to have somebody come in and be the person that will reconnect us to the power and say, listen, right now you've just lost focus. You've just lost perspective. Let me put my hand on your shoulder and let me pray for you. Oh, I need that right now. How many of you could use some prayer in this room today? This is why we came. All right? Because we need that prayer. We need that strength, that strength that we don't have. And so when somebody says, I will pray for you, it's not a meaningless, ice-slick statement. And when I say ice-slick statement, what I mean is this. An old pastor taught me that there are some verses, there are some truths that you can hear and just kind of s- slide over them because we hear them all the time. And sometimes when even we say, well, we'll pray for you, I don't know about you, but there has been a moment where it's like, I'm going to be praying for you. And I might not have prayed. Has that happened to you? Or maybe just to make someone feel good, I've been praying for you when you really hadn't been praying for them at all. But when somebody says, I'm praying for you, that statement is very important because that means this is what they call intercession. Intercession means that at that moment, they're going to the God of heaven through his son Jesus on your behalf to bring your needs before him. And I do not want to uh, minimize the significance of that I'll pray for you. It's crucial for the Christian, so very important. And that's why today is a crazy passage. Because at the end of his life, before he's about to be arrested, he's already been betrayed. That's going to manifest itself in the next chapter. But before he's arrested and before he goes to the cross, as he's finishing up his prayer, we saw unleashing the power of prayer last week as he prays for himself 
that we go to God and we can unleash His power when we acknowledge His timing, when we acknowledge His authority, when we talk about God being glorified, and then when, we, when He's praying for His disciples, we see that He's praying to make His Father's name known. He's praying for their joy, but now, now what He prays for is absolutely mind-blowing. It's audacious. Some might say it's even offensive if they don't understand it. But the most encouraging thing, listen, it says here in verse 20, I do not pray. So he's finished praying for his disciples. I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Who is he praying for? Not just these alone, but also for all those who will believe. Here's how it worked. The disciples and the followers, here's what they did. They took the word into the different regions. They wrote letters. They wrote the gospels. They took them into different regions to the point of their deaths. Those letters, those writings were accepted by the church. Those writings were compounded, gathered together if they were consistent with the disciples' teachings. And that's how we have our word. Here's what happened then. Not only did the disciples die to give that message to us, but then they passed it on, and now the word was being translated into different languages, to the Bible that you have in your hands today. Who's he praying for, gang? He's praying for us. At the end of his life, at the darkest moment in his life, Jesus Christ is going to the Father on our behalf. He's going on our behalf and saying, I'm not just praying for these guys that have been with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. He prayed for you. What does that mean to you? When I say, hey, I'm praying for you, hopefully you're like, that, that's so awesome. Somebody's praying for me. But when I tell you this, when I tell you that Jesus Christ is praying for you, when he's about to go to a cross. He's praying for you. And a few things come to mind as I looked at this passage. During the darkest hour of his life, you were on his mind. During the darkest hour of his life, there's a verse that tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Who is the joy set before him? The church of Jesus Christ is the joy set before him. That's you. That's me. And we were on his mind during the darkest hour of his life. Ladies, how many of you have ever given birth in here? Would you raise your hands? All right. When my wife was pregnant with my daughter, I took these classes, right? I took these classes that would teach me how to be there with her and, uh, be there with her and enjoy the birthing experience with her <laughs> by breathing. I'm breathing. Now, she's in excruciating pain, okay? I know that she's going to be in excruciating pain, but I'm sharing the birthing experience with her by doing what? By breathing. I'm breathing. She's enduring. Why is she enduring this pain? What is she thinking of the whole time? It's got to be one thing. It's got to be the fact that in just a short while, some longer than others, that what comes out is such a pride and such a blessing. And that baby has been on her mind through carrying that baby for nine months. Now that baby is before. Oh, it was worth it. 
before you came out, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about you, and it was worth every bit of the pain that I endured to just be holding you right now. Ask any mother that's given birth that's held that baby. During his darkest hour, what was on his mind was you. Does that blow your mind? It blows my mind. But here's something else that will blow your mind. Not just during the darkest hour were you on his mind. What the Bible also tells us about Jesus Christ was this. Is that before the foundations of the world, you were on his mind. Before the foundations of the world, you were on his mind. Before heaven and earth were created, he was thinking of you. You were part of his vision. Ephesians 2.10 says, You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Before the foundations of the world, these works have been prepared for you. In the book of Jeremiah, he tells Jeremiah, Before you were conceived, conceived in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Does that change the way you walk around this earth knowing that before the foundations of the world you were on his mind? During his darkest moment, during his darkest hour, you were on his mind. Before the foundation of the world, you were on his mind. You are still, this is the third thing, you are still continually on his mind. According to Hebrews, therefore he is able to save forever the ones drawn to God through him. And there he always lives to make intercession for you. You are still on his mind. You have never left his mind and his heart during his darkest moment before the foundation of the world, even now. And if you read the book of Revelation, this is the fourth thing. Revelation tells us you'll forever be on his mind. You will forever be on the mind of God. Recently went on a trip. I was going to be gone Friday and Saturday. Texted my wife. Called my wife. FaceTimed my wife. All right? She, she was like, did, did she know she was on my mind? Yeah, she did. Why? She's my wife. I think it's Elvis Presley said, you're always on my mind. Or Willie Nelson said it too. You are always on the mind of God. And that changes something. That changes the way that we walk through this world. Just knowing that you've been on his mind for all of eternity, that you will be on his mind forever. You're on his mind. So the object of this prayer, of this farewell prayer, of this priestly prayer, this point of the prayer, the object is who? The object is you. I just sounded like Dr. Seuss for a second. No, the object is you. You are the object of his prayer. But what is he praying for us? This is important. This is really important. Where he says, verse 20, that they will also believe in me through your word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. Are you getting the point? In them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in what? In one. In one. What is he praying for on behalf of the church? He's praying for unity. Why? Because he says it's only through that unity that they're going to come to believe. 
It's only through the unity of the church that the world is going to be able to look at what's going on in the church and they're not going to, they'll see broken, challenged, messed up people within the walls of the church, but with one common adhesive holding us together, and that is the love of God. And if they see us unified, that's when they'll look and they'll say, this is different. I don't hesitate to tell you that I grew up in one of those households where some of my friends that were from broken homes would come into my household and they saw unity in our family. Yeah, they saw struggles, they saw challenges, but they saw unity in our family. And because of that, they came in and they raided the refrigerator and they knew they could and they raided the snack jar. And well, they really weren't supposed to, but they did it anyway, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Why? Because they saw that we were one and what did they want? They wanted family. When they walk in these doors, what do we want? We want them to see that we're one and that at the end of the day, that what divides us is not as compelling as what unites us. And what unites us is, was, and forever will be the blood of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit have enjoyed this unity forever. They've enjoyed it forever. Think about that. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed that unity forever. And now Jesus is saying, oh, that they would be one like we are. Oh, if they could only know, if they could only understand, if they could only experience... One of the great blessings of my wife and I's life is a couple that were married for 58 years from the church that she grew up in. They had a wonderful marriage for 58 years. And after 58 years, you could still see that they doted over one another. They're both gone now. But the influence and the impact they had on my wife, why? Because here's what they did. They sat down with us a week at a time and they showed us what a marriage was this is beautiful and, and here's why because I don't remember one session that we ever traveled to that Tiffany and I did not get into an argument on the way there <laughs> alright somebody would cut me off I would respond and <laughs> Tiffany and I there it would be uh, and then we'd walk in and they'd say how are you guys doing today just great we're doing wonderful. Yeah. That's why we're here. We sat down with them, and what we saw was the beauty of what a Christian marriage could be. And they passed it on to us. My wife and I, our heart is to pass it on to others. So if you were any other young couple, no. So our, our, our goal is to pass it on to others. Why? Because we know the beauty of that unity. All right, and when you see something that together and when we see what the Lord is working, it doesn't mean it's not without its hiccups. It doesn't mean it's not without its bumps or its bruises. It just means that we love what God has blessed us with so much that we want to pass it on. And that's how things should be in the church. They should walk in. They should see a unity. Man, these people love each other. When people walk into this church, what I see and what I've always seen, and I'd rather have, and I'll be honest with you, I would rather have 10 people that love each other than 100 ships that pass in the night. Does that make sense? Because when they walk in and they see the hug, they see the people loving on each other and caring with each other. So, so the unity is what, is it, what Jesus is praying for. The unity. Because here's what happens. You can have confidence. When we're united and we don't have something holding us back, we go out to tell the gospel, God blesses that effort. Because we're in obedience. 
I'm not holding anything against you. You're not holding anything against me. We're acting in obedience, and so we're acting in unity. We're acting in concert, and we're putting forth a message that God is blessing. Why? Because Jesus was praying. He was praying that the gospel would be made known by our unity. You say, Pastor, I want to be part of that. How can we promote more unity in the church? Not just in our church, but in the church in general. I came up with ten things. Ten quick things. Ten things to promote unity within the walls of the church. One, we're going to promote unity when we realize that morality is a conversation we have after salvation. That's the first point. The wording of that I got from another pastor. Um, When we realize morality is a conversation we have after salvation, and you're saying, what does that mean? Let me explain. Let's unpack that statement for one second. It says, we've found the word, you found the word to be the ultimate truth, the ultimate love of your life, the ultimate authority in your life. The moment you came to the cross, you realized that Jesus was the final authority in all matters of morality, all matters of right and wrong, and you submitted your life to him, and when the world wavers, the word was clear, and so you recognize this, that he died so that you could live. You recognize that. It changed you. It changed you. It changed the music you listen to. It changed the way that you speak. It changes the way that you spend. It changes the crowds that you hang out with. It changed you. You want others to experience what you've experienced. But here's the thing. You want to change their behavior before there's a heart change. That's why it's been said that you cannot legislate morality. You can only regulate behavior. You can't legislate morality. You can only regulate behavior. There has to be a change in people's hearts first, and so they have to be presented with the gospel first. They have to know that we meet them on the same playing field. We're all sinners, and we all need a Savior. And before we try to change someone's behavior, we have to present them with the gospel. That's the church's responsibility. Sometimes we start it from the other side. And we try to change their behavior first, but that's not it. Because if I say, well, you should change your behavior and you shouldn't do that, and they would say, why? I would say, well, it's because of Jesus. Well, I, don't, I, I haven't received your Jesus. They need to know that they're sinners first. And they need to be loved as sinners just as Jesus loved sinners. So the first way that we'll promote unity in the church is when we realize that morality is a conversation we have after salvation. The second way we'll promote unity in the church is when we see people instead of projects. When we see people instead of projects. There are some of you in this room. Oh, you think I'm going to accuse you? Not at all. Some of you in this room can take an old beat-up car, and you can look at that old beat-up car And you can say, you know what? Well, this car could be automatic. It could be systematic. It could be hydromatic. You look at that car and you think it could be grease lightning. You look at that car and you see see what it can be. You look at a house. When Tiffany and I were looking at houses, there were a couple of houses that we looked at. And these houses, well, they needed somebody to come in there and do some stuff. And I looked at it and I'm like, I don't have those kind of gifts. That's a project house. I don't have that kind of gift. And anybody that knows me knows that the brother doesn't have those kind of gifts. Okay? But here's the thing. Sometimes we look at people like that. Oh, well, this person's dealing with this, 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 and this. And that's going to be too much work to invest in. 
there was an elder at a church that I went to that once told me, well, I like preaching the word of God, but I don't want to be a pastor at the church, and I really don't want to be a sitting elder at the church. Why is that? Well, because I don't want to get my hands dirty. Let me ask you something, Christian. Did God reach into your life? Has he gotten his hands dirty by dealing with you? Yeah. He's gotten his hands dirty by dealing with this man. When we see people instead of projects. Number three, we will promote unity in the church when we prioritize engaging relationship over enforcing rules. When we prioritize engaging relationship over enforcing rules. And what it means is this, is that when my wife, when one of the churches that we went to, my wife and I, well, they knew my wife for a very long time. And we went to a dinner and somebody sat down next to me and I didn't know this person from Adam. And they said to me, they said, um, well, my name is such and such. Do your parents know Jesus? I said, hi, my name is John. Let's start there. When we engage relationships, sometimes we want to tell people how to live or changes they should make before we even know their name. Hi, I'm such and such. We are supposed to be about engaging relationships. Number four, we'll promote unity in the church when we take our own sin more seriously than we take other people's sin. My sin looks much worse on you. My sin looks much worse on you. There are things that I look at and I'm like, oh, this person, well, they're, 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 they're struggling with monster drinks. They're struggling with monster drinks. I'm on cup of coffee number five for the day. But they're struggling with monster drinks. And I'll call them up on their struggle with monster drinks when I've got cup of coffee number five. Now, I really don't have five cups of coffee. That was just an illustration. I do more like four. Um, two in the morning, two at night. Number five. We will promote unity in the church when we're willing to receive correction as easily as we administer it. When we're willing to receive it as easily as we're willing to administer it. Let me ask you something. If you're doing something in your life right now that is hindering your relationship with God, only say amen if you want someone to tell you about it. All right, so we got one person. All right, one person. All right. If you're doing something in your life that is hindering your relationship with God, we would all sit there and say, well, well of course, I think I do. I think I want them to tell me about it until somebody comes up to you and opens up their mouth and they bring it to you. We want it until it's received. <laughs> Listen, Jesus said this. He said, before you start taking the speck out of your brother's eye, start taking the plank out of your own. That's when we'll promote unity in the church. Number six, we'll promote unity in the church. I mean, are these resonating? Do these make sense? We'll promote unity in the church when we do these things. Number six says, when we learn the culture that we're ministering to before we go in there trying to change it. When we learn. So in other words, I work with, I work with these guys, our youth group. They come from a different culture, quite honestly, than I come from. Am I willing to learn about the things that are important to them? Am I willing to learn about the things that are important to them? Are they willing to learn about the things that are important to me? That's when we're going to successfully minister to one another. What did Jesus do? Jesus became a man. 
left the throne of heaven, humbled himself, and became a man. Paul said to the Jew, I became a Jew, so as to win the Jews. To the weak, I became weak, so as to win the weak. And so it becomes our responsibility to say, listen, I don't want to change that. I want to engage the culture first. Let God change him. Let God change him. That's his specialty. So that's number six. Number seven, when we learn the difference between addressing sin, listen to this one, when we learn the difference between addressing someone's sin and personal preference, do you have anybody in your life right now that when you hear them, it's kind of like when they talk, when they say something, when they do something, if you remember that scene in Jaws where Robert Shaw runs his nails down the chalkboard and gets everybody's attention, do you remember that? Have you ever had anybody do that? And do you have anybody in your life that when they talk, when they open their mouth, or it's something that they do, and when they do it, it's like, oh. It's what they call, I think that there's a term for this called cringe-worthy. Okay, okay. Cringe-worthy, okay? So it's like somebody does this. Now you have to ask yourself one question. Is this person sinning, or is this just something I don't like? Is God trying to cultivate patience in me through exposing me to these things that just annoy me and bother me, and maybe he's working more on patience with me more so than he has to change them? So when we learn the difference between addressing sin and personal preference is important, we will promote unity in the church. This is number eight. When our burdens are aligned with God's. When our burdens are aligned with God's. Are you more burdened about some of the political unrest you see on Facebook than you are about getting someone the gospel? What is more important to you? When you see some of these hot-button issues, these hot-button topics, are you as compelled to say, listen, there's a hurting world out there. These are the things that God prioritizes. What did Jesus prioritize when he came? The Bible tells us what he prioritized is he came to seek and save that which was lost. And now he says with authority given to him, church, go make disciples. Are those your priorities? Because until they are, you won't promote unity in the church. As a matter of fact, there will be more unrest in the church until we start prioritizing what God prioritizes. Number nine. And this is a big one in the church of Christ, and this brings a lot of separation. When we don't make tradition criteria for acceptance when we don't make tradition criteria for acceptance. Well, you come into our church, and I know they did things differently at the other church, but we've always done it this way here, and if you don't do it this way here, I wonder if you're even going to heaven. No! No, 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 no. I'll be honest with you. I've worn a suit and tie to preach before. Here. I've worn a suit and tie to preach. And I had somebody actually come up to me and look down at me for it saying, we didn't get the memo that today was dress-up day. Really? Now listen, gang. This is important. Because there will be people that come in here fully dressed up. There will be people that come in here that dress a bit more casual. There are people that will come here just... Lucky to get in the door because they just came from work. Guess who's welcome here? Everybody. Everybody is welcome here. Okay? There are those that come into this church and they'll carry a King James version and they'll say, well, it's nothing but the King James, but there are those that have NIV. There are those that have 
NLT. There are those here that come and they have a BLT. Hey, whatever it is to your preference, whatever it is that you're bringing, you're welcome here. You're welcome. It was so often that what we saw Jesus do was that the religious leaders had enforced their tradition and it prevented them from engaging the people. And so the people looked at them and they couldn't relate to them. And when Jesus came, He became one of them. Last one. And this will cover them all. We will promote unity in the church when our greatest motivation Listen, is the love of God and the love of his people. It's the love of God and the love of his people. That's what can put together a broken marriage. That's what can bring back together a broken family. That's what can bring together a broken, hurting community is the love of God. There's a great illustration that I read in preparation for this about a newspaper columnist and minister George Crane. He tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. There is division. I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Here's what he suggested. He said, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no effort to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. Oh, with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful, will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if for two months she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. When she didn't return, Dr. Crane called her, Well, are you ready now to go through the divorce? Divorce, she exclaimed, Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion results in emotion. Listen to that. Motion resulted in emotion. All right, action and stepping out in faith and doing exactly what God told you to do will be the thing that when you take that step out in faith, that's when he sweeps in. So in other words, I find it hard to forgive him. I find it very hard to forgive him, but the Bible tells me that I do. So I'm gritting my teeth, but I'm going at him and I'm saying, okay, I forgive you. And as I'm doing that, what is God doing? Because I'm acting in obedience, he's changing my heart. Because I'm acting in obedience, he's changing my heart. And until that, I can't be one with him. If I keep holding these grudges, I can't be one with him. And that's what he was praying for. And the only thing that's going to allow me to do that is love. You see, love is the cohesive and love is the secret. Love is the great big secret here that he says, listen, Father. He says, towards the end of this prayer, he says, O righteous Father, verse 25, the world has not known you. Oh, but I've known you. And these have known you that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What changes a life is the love of God. What changes a heart is the love of God. What changes a family is the love of God. And what changes a community is the love of God. We won't be those that turn the world upside down as the Word of God tells about until we love like that. Until we have something that draws us together like that 
And what we have is the cross of Christ so easily forgotten during struggle, during times of strife. But that's what changes everything. There's a great example in nature of geese. Why they fly in a V formation. You ever notice that when the geese fly in a V formation and they're flying south? The benefit, it's been found that when the geese fly together, the journey is easier. When you see geese heading south for the winter, flying along in a V formation, you might be interested in knowing that science has discovered why they fly that way. Research has revealed that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately behind it. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least, listen, 71% greater flying range than if the bird was flying alone. When the church comes together and we're flying together in that formation, but what you'll also see in those formations is that the lead bird sometimes gets a little bit tired. It drops back in the formation so another bird can come in there and take over the work. And what you see when we observe geese and God has provided this in nature, when they're unified on one mission going to one destination, a few things. One, they get there together. Nobody gets left behind. They have a no geese left behind policy. <laughs> they get there together. It's an easier journey. They not only get there together, but they get there quicker. How many of you have had a hard time getting to your destination because you didn't have support at one point? They get there together. They get there quicker. They get there with more energy. Why? Because at certain points when they got tired, somebody else came in and they were kind of riding in the back and kind of catching that little, that little wind from the back. So they get there together. They get there quicker. They get there stronger. And they encourage each other. Listen, there's a reason that they found out that the, that the geese, when you hear them, they're loud. They honk at each other. What are they doing when they're honking? <laughs> what they're doing when they're honking is they're encouraging each other to go to keep up the pace. Kind of like when you're driving in New York City. <laughs> when I was a tour guide on the double-decker bus tours, I gotta tell you this. When I was a, a tour guide on the double-decker bus tours, so if you ever see those double-decker tours, I was the one on saying, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to uh, New York Apple Bus Tours. We're coming up on the Hudson River, named, of course, after the famous actor, Rock Hudson. And the people would be like, what? No. And, uh, but when we were given those tours, when people would honk their horns, we'd get stuck in rush hour traffic. And I would just say to them, because it was gridlock in Manhattan. If you've, ever, if you've ever driven to New York City, it's miserable during rush hour. I would tell them that when you hear a New Yorker beep his horn, it's their way of saying, I love you. And there were a lot of afternoons where we experienced a lot of love in that city. Listen, the honking of the geese, they're encouraging each other to keep up the pace. So they get there together, they get there quicker, they get there stronger, they encourage each other along the way, and when they get to their destination, they've gotten there more efficiently. Now, if that's just an example of geese, how much more the Church of Jesus Christ, different backgrounds, different cultures, different sensibilities, different upbringings, different trials, different gifts, different passions, they come together, they work together under the cross of Jesus Christ. Unity, and here's what that church does. According to the book of Acts, 
and what we've seen throughout history, that's the church that turns the world upside down. Upside down. And it's only the cross of Christ that can do that. A couple of hundred years ago, it was called the Great American Experiment. And I read to you this illustration by Tony Evans. One of the great experiments when it comes to unity is the American experiment. The American experiment is unique because of its intentionality to bring people from all walks of life, from every nation under the banner of a single flag, and to intentionally seek to bring across to these shores people from all kinds of other nations who would make up a union called the United States of America. The experiment brought people together who would pledge allegiance to a single flag even though their backgrounds were different, unique, and dissimilar. I don't want to get into the flag debate. I just want to read this illustration and see if it resonates. We acknowledge our differences by annotating our original heritages to our current nationality with terms like Irish-American, Swedish-American, Polish-American, African-American, Haitian-American, Hispanic-American. The introductory phrase cites the uniqueness, but the last word cites the unity. Whatever I am uniquely based on regarding culture, history, background, or previous location, I am under the American banner. There was an experiment, an attempt to have a United States, even though people seeking to be unified were totally different. And you can make your own judgments as to whether or not that has worked. But if it has failed, then what we have, the one thing that can always, without fail, bring us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ when we meet at the cross. When we meet at the cross, that's the one common language that was meant to bring people from all walks of life together under the love of Jesus Christ, under that banner. Under that banner, a non-negotiable banner, His cross. What was He praying for? Gang, He was praying that we would be one. He was praying that we would be one. And the way for that to happen, it starts with this, is remembering how much you have been loved. Because somebody came into this room today and somewhere along the lines you forgot how much God loved you. You sang the song as a child, Jesus loves me, this I know. But somewhere along the line you stopped making a connection between this and this. And that's where the power is. That's where the power is. It's the heart connection. It's knowing that you're loved so that we can be one with him and then we can bring our families together under him, under that umbrella. And then we can bring a church together and then that church can bring a community together and then that community can bring a state together and then that state can bring a country together and then that country can bring a world together. That's what the church is called to. So that when the world looks at us, they see that what unites us being the blood of Jesus Christ is much stronger than what divides us. And just in case you forgot, we're given the sacrament here today. This is called the Lord's Supper. And why were we given this? Remember what Jesus said? He said, this do in remembrance of me. Because when we remember him, when we remember him, that's when we're going to love people the way that we're supposed to.
who's welcome to this table today? Anyone that comes in this room that has confessed Christ as Lord and believes that God the Father raised him from the dead, you're welcome to partake of this when it gets passed around to you. You're welcome to partake of this when it gets passed around. But understand this. If you came into this room today and you're like, you know what? I don't know. If you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to this, even if you're struggling. Even if you came in here in the battle of your life, you are welcome to this table. But if you have not received Christ as your Savior, then what we're going to do, because he desires that his children never miss a meal, right? Then what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And it's at this moment that if you need to get the relationship right with God, either by accepting Jesus as your Savior or by rededicating your life, we're going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to say two prayers here. The first prayer is going to be an initial connection prayer to repent of your sins and receive the gift of eternal life. If you've never done that, I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me out loud. If you want to receive the gift of eternal life, dear Father, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Please forgive me of my sins, Lord. Past, present, and future. Jesus, come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life and the love of my life. Please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you said that prayer today for the first time, would you please raise your hand? If anybody said it today for the first time. Okay, we got you. And if you're here today and you want to rededicate your life, because if we're going through a struggle and if we're holding on to some sin in our life, you're holding on to that sin. If you're somebody here that has no intention of quitting that sin, then don't take from this. But that's not God's desire. If you're here today and you want to repent of your sins and you want to go to Jesus Christ, and you want to enjoy this communion, this blessed communion, this blessed unity that he has made possible, then we're going to lead you in a prayer right now to ask God forgiveness of your sins and to rededicate your life. So you can repeat this prayer out loud. Dear Father, I am your child. I've done things my own way. I come to this table today struggling. And I need some help. I need to stop doing things my own way. Please forgive me. Let me feel your Holy Spirit again. I know you never left me. But less of me and more of you. Help me to love you with my heart my soul, my mind, and my strength. I rededicate my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.